Today's reading is、um, Exodus chapter 3. We're going to read verses 7 through 12. If you're using a shed Bible, that's on page 54. And if you're using a large print shed Bible, it's still on page 54. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of those Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jezebites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this is the sign to you that is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this very mountain. The word of the Lord. Had the opportunity to meet. My name is Kyle Lake, and I serve as our family life pastor here. And I want to invite you to the gym at Pine Ridge Elementary School in the early 1990s, home of some fierce lunchtime competitions orchestrated by one of the greatest fifth grade teachers of all time, Mr. Foley. Who would give the winners things like pop and candy? He was ahead of the curve in this realm. The gym was home to where you would bring all of your tickets that you had collected from the school carnival to receive your treasures and prizes that you would take home for the day. And the gym is home to words that have lived rent free in my head for 30 plus years. At the hands of a motivational speaker, an all school assembly. I am smart. I am successful. I am special. I am somebody. That's right. Anyone else have a motivational speaker like this come to your school? Or did you all miss out and I'm the only one to have received this great and gladdening news at such a young age? Now, what I, I didn't realize then is that those words I would need not as an elementary school student. But as someone in my mid 30s, as dinner is running late, as the dog is zigzagging quickly through the household, and the children are, well, it's that hour of the day. 
You know the hour that I'm talking about, right? And I wonder and I look around, who am I? Do I have what it takes to make it through this very day? Who am I? Maybe you have found yourself asking a question like that. Last Sunday, a handful of us here finished reading the first five books of the Bible over the course of eight weeks, the Torah. And in early October, when we came to this passage, I was struck by Moses' question, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, this question is situated in a place within the biblical narrative of great significance, stretching back to the ending of the book of Genesis, we learn that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Israelites, have by one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, come to live in the land of Egypt. Now, Joseph was one who rose in status and power in Pharaoh's household in Egypt. But time has since passed, and so has Joseph and the Pharaoh that appointed him. And now the current Pharaoh looks around and sees the growing number of Israelites and grows concerned about their number, that perhaps they'll join forces with one of the neighboring nations and overthrow the country, will take power away from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, or maybe even subtly and indirectly that the growing number of Israelites in the country will slowly shift sort of the culture and the customs of the Egyptians to be more like that of the Israelites. And so Pharaoh decides to enslave them, and enslave them he does for over 400 years. And in our text, we learn that God notices and is concerned about the cries of God's people, the Israelites. And so God has decided to do something about it. God has decided to intervene on behalf of the Israelites. God will enter in and redeem them and liberate them from the hand of their oppressor and bring them out of Egypt And that God is going to do this through Moses. Moses, the shepherd. Moses, the one well on in years. Perhaps well past his prime. Moses, the one who fled Egypt because he had murdered someone. Moses, perhaps the outcast. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses asks. 
I imagine that Moses listening to God at this pinnacle moment, this moment of the burning bush, hearing how God is going to act in the lives of the Israelites, that he is concerned about their suffering, that God is going to come down and rescue them, and that God is going to bring them into a land that is spacious and good, flowing with milk and honey. Moses is nodding along saying, yes, God, do that. That's amazing. And then sort of being caught off guard When God says, and so now I am sending you, now go. And this brings about a question for Moses. Who am I? Who am I? A question about Moses' identity. I don't think Moses here is asking God for his own name. Moses hasn't forgotten that his name is Moses in this, mo- this moment. And I don't think Moses is asking sort of one of the great existential or ontological questions of, of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to exist and to be in the world? I think Moses is asking a question about qualifications, about experience, in some way asking, why me? Am I smart? Am I successful? Am I special? Am I somebody? Why me, God? But layered within Moses' question, I think there's something else. I think there is a plea. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. After all, he's just a shepherd. And he's well on in years. And whatever maybe experience he gleaned from his time living in Egypt, living in Pharaoh's household, maybe has gone to the wayside. And he wonders, how is it possible that I can carry through with the immensity of the task that is laid before me? How can I go with the severity of this message to stand in opposition, to stand in front of Pharaoh and bring this message to release the Israelites, to bring them out of Egypt? How am I to go to Pharaoh the leader of this geographical area with his horses and his chariots and his army and the way that he's enslaved people for over 400 years with this message of liberation. How am I to go with him with this task? It seems too great for Moses. It seems too large. In some ways, God is asking Moses to take up his cross and to go in the way that God is calling him to go, to bear witness to God's redemptive plan in the face of Pharaoh. And perhaps in Moses' question, we hear an echo of one that would be asked years later, in that good and spacious land, in the land that God had promised, in an olive garden, one on the lips of God's very self. 
If there is another way, as Jesus asked, who am I to go to Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? But I think in Moses' question, there is another layer. That it's not simply a plea, but it's a confession as well. It's a confession before God. As we turn back here, just earlier in the story, we discover that Moses is having a conversation with God at this burning bush. A story that no doubt is probably familiar to many of us, a well-known story where we hear when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place you are standing is holy ground. Moses is standing on holy ground in the presence of a holy God. I think in this moment, being called and summoned by God, Moses is brought to reflect on who he is, on his own weakness of character on the depth of his sin, on the reality that he is indeed one who has murdered, who has lived cross-grained with God's purposes for humankind. And it brings about this question, God, who am I? God, could you really use someone like me? God, I am not holy like you are. God, I'm not other like you are. Moses' question in some ways reflects the great tradition of those who have been called by God, summoned by God to a task. Like the prophet Isaiah, who says these words, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty." Or the words of Simon Peter in the presence of Jesus, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Who am I is a confession. Now, I can't imagine that many of us hurried out the door this morning, excited to come here in order to confess. That may not be on the sort of top list of reasons that we come to church, that we gather together to to worship, may not be one of the things that is driving you to confess. And there's perhaps good reason for that. The scholar and theologian Andrew Root notes that really over the last 200 plus years and sort of accelerating over the last 40 to 50 years, we've grown increasingly uncomfortable with guilt. And we like pushing guilt to the margins. We don't want to deal with guilt. We don't want to feel guilty. We don't want to think about guilt. And that the way that guilt was once framed that 
Guilt comes from a place of living cross-grained with God and God's commands for the world has actually now come back full force. That we do indeed feel guilty and guilty a lot of the time. But not because of our relationship with God, but because of our relationship with ourselves. That we feel guilty in ourselves, that the location of guilt is no longer in a God who judges, but in the self. Andy Root notes in his recent book, The Church in an Age of Secular Mysticism, this about guilt. He says, what is shocking is that the source of this guilt is not God, or the De Verbum, the Word of God. It is the performing self. We feel guilt to ourselves. We feel like we've failed to use our time well, to become the magnificent self that we should be. We failed to compare well to all the other magnificent selves we see on Instagram. We've let ourselves down. We are guilty of not curating ourselves magnificently enough to win us constant happiness. We blew it. Our inner genius and our heroic actions are not recognized as they could or should be. All because we didn't perform them well enough. We feel guilty because we haven't used our time well enough feel guilty because when we look around and we compare ourselves to others and we see the magnificent self, the ways that others are put together, the ways that others are living out their values on Instagram, we feel guilty about the ways that we are. We feel guilty because we feel like we've let ourselves down. And we blow it. And I think this reality of feeling guilt is particularly true for parents and especially for moms. Mom guilt. Has anyone else heard this phrase? The pressure that moms feel to have it all together to have the perfect Pinterest board, to put all the right things together for a great Saturday afternoon, to show up in the workplace or in the home. The pressure is crushing. And I think moms feel guilty the most in this system. And so I think one of the most essential and necessary practices for us as a church and us as Christians is confession. That because we don't want to feel guilty, and yet we do, that instead of offering our guilt to a God who receives it and transforms it, instead of offering our guilt to a God who Though this God is the judge, is the one who enters in as the judge who is judged. 
This God enters in and receives it. Instead of offering it before this God, we heap it upon ourselves, perpetuating the cycle of needing to try harder, to do more, all leading to more and more guilt. That indeed our feelings of being smart and successful and special and somebody are always coming up in comparison to the magnificent self of the other. And it brings us to wonder, who am I? That confession, perhaps, in the words of Jamie Smith, is the opportunity to confess precisely what we long for. What if confession is precisely what we long for? To finally be able to give our guilt to a God who receives it in God's love and mercy. Notice what Moses' question, what Moses' plea and confession opens up. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. Moses' question, Moses' confession to God opens up space, opens a window of possibility for God to enter in and to remind Moses that God is with him. To give Moses this wonderfully good news. Moses, you do not need to be afraid. Moses, give me what you are carrying for. I am with you. Perhaps Moses and us are being invited to understand that the most fundamental way that we can answer this question, who am I? is by asking who is God. That God is one who is with and for God's people. That who am I is not a question about your job. It's not a question about your grades. It's not a question about your resume. It's not a question about your success or lack thereof on the playing field. It's not a question about your credentials. But it's a question ultimately about who God is and what God has given to you, what you are freely able to receive as a gift from God. That God is one who has called and sent you as God has called and sent Moses. But that God has called and sent you not alone, but with God's very presence. Who is Moses? One whom God is with. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Maybe this morning as you hear Moses' question, as you hear his plea and his confession, as you hear perhaps the apprehension in his voice, to the insurmountable task to which he has been called, to the severity of the message to which he must deliver to, 
the immeasurable and incredible news that he must deliver on behalf of the Israelites. Maybe you find resonance with it. Resonance, not that you will have to go to Pharaoh and deliver a message, but that you, as Christ's witness, carry with you an equally impossible message. One that each of us, in our own peculiar way, is called to bear witness to in our lives and in this world. That indeed, in the person of Jesus Christ, that in an executed Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago, God had intervened in the world and in the history of the world in a decisive way. That indeed, the hope of the world is not in ourselves and what we can accomplish. Not in ourselves and what we can do, but in what God has done and what God freely gives to each and every one of us. An impossible message for us to carry. But one with which we are invited to bear witness to. And so what is the insurmountable task that God is calling you to face this week? What is the insurmountable task that God is calling you to face this week? What is the message of impossibility that you are carrying with you? Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I that I should bear witness to the fullness of life that is available in Jesus Christ in my home or in my school or in my work? Who am I that I should seek God's justice in the face of of ongoing racism and exclusion in our country? Who am I that I should raise a child when I have so much baggage of my own? Who am I that I should live with hope and joy in the face of disease and death or relational fracture? Who am I that I should disciple young people when I am well on in years and believe that I have little to offer them, who am I that I should faithfully pray when I have so many doubts of my own? Who am I that I should demonstrate patience in the midst of a culture of immediacy? Who am I that I should display kindness and gentleness and self-control in a culture, in a world of harsh antagonism? Who am I? At the end of Matthew's gospel, we hear Jesus giving his disciples an impossible task. We hear Jesus calling and sending his very own disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. God with us. Emmanuel. God with us in our tasks. God with us in the message to which we must bear witness to and carry. God with us in this particular season and in this particular week. And God with us at this table. And so I say, the Lord be with you. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Let's try that one again. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And so we pray. Send your Holy Spirit, O God, upon your people and upon your church and upon these elements. For we long to recognize your presence in our midst. And holy and right it is and our joyful duty to give you thanks and praise at all times and in all places, O Lord our God, almighty and everlasting creator. For you created the heavens in all of their splendor and you created the earth in its plenty. And you have given us life and breath and sustained us by your love. And you have demonstrated the fullness of your love in sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be the one who reconciles us and the whole world to you. And so we bless and adore your glorious name and joining our voices with the whole company of heavenly hosts and with your church all around the world in your church here, we lift our voices together singing this glorious hymn. And so let us sing together these words. Holy, holy Lord God Almighty, so worthy to be Holy, holy, Lord God Almighty, my soul will bless your name. Blessed are you, O Lord our God. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so, God, take these elements, these basic human, earthly elements and transform them into spiritual food for us to nourish us and to sustain us in the task to which you have called us, each of us, this week. That the bread that we break and the cup that we bless would be to us the communion, 
the body and blood of Christ. And then receiving these elements, we would be joined with your church. And that you and your great love and mystery would gather your church from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. And so as we wait, we beckon you to come. Come, Lord Jesus. And so we rehearse the story that has been passed on to us, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after they had feasted, he took the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And so whenever we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We proclaim the great mystery of our faith speaking it with the generations that have come before us and the generations that will come after us in the church around the world today, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so we have allergen-free elements around the room and down here. You can come and receive those whenever you are ready. We have prayer walls where you can write your prayer and put it in the wall and we will be praying with you uh, and praying for you throughout the week. Paul is in the back if you would like prayer this morning. But now come. Come all you who are hungry. Come all you who are thirsty. Come all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come all you who feel guilty. Come. For the Lord has prepared a table for us, a feast that proclaims the good news, that God is indeed with us. And so however and whenever you come to this table, come, for all things are ready. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.